Lord, thank you for your precious blood that qualifies us to enjoy your precious presence. Wash us freshly again right now. As we open up our heart to you, we pray that you would speak to us. Speak a particular word to us tonight. Lord, in fact, we want you to bring us into the depths of your heart. We're not here for superficial things. We want to know you. We'd like this whole evening to be taking time to behold you. We want to be brought into your inward parts and have your feeling about things. We really love you, Lord. We want to be with you. We're afraid that we might offend you and lose your presence. Lord Jesus, thank you for every single one of these dear sisters. As we're gathered together here, we like to give you a corporate Nazarite vow, standing together as companions of one another, to stand in the last of this age as a dispensational instrument for you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, tonight, we, uh, it's not the end. Tomorrow we have one more meeting. But tonight we come to the end of our stories in Daniel. And tonight we cover two chapters, chapter 5 and 6. And these two chapters are extremes. One is extreme on the negative side, and the other is extreme on the positive side. So tonight we're going to get a, a little glimpse at... Daniel versus the age. And it also should give us a little glimpse into the role that we will play, even the role that we are playing at the end of this age. You know, I am just so uh, full of hope, expectation, and thanksgiving to the Lord that at this time, the Lord has decided to release this kind of fellowship to teenagers in the Lord's recovery. I find this completely amazing. These are the kind of messages that you would have in trainings or in the conferences in the Lord's recovery. But I believe that there's something in the Lord's heart, particularly for the kids, the young ones in the Lord's recovery. And I think it has got to be the most blessed thing to be a teenager in the Lord's recovery right now. I don't think there could be anything better than this. You go, whoa, wait a minute. You don't understand what it's like. Well, I don't know how long the Lord will delay. I don't, really, I don't, Honest, and whether I should say this or not, I don't know, but I don't honestly feel that the Lord's return is imminent, like now. I believe that the Lord's coming is a little ways down the road. Now, you all may sigh a, a relief. You know, I was with a young sister, actually it was in Poland just this time, while we were, uh, I forget what we were doing, it was during one of the afternoon times and they were having some activity and I just went and sat in the back and was watching everybody. And one of the young sisters from the UK 
who I know quite well, uh, she kind of said something to me, I, and I don't know why she said it. She said, uh, she was so honest. I mean, just like, you know, uh, so honest. She just said, I don't want the Lord to come back yet. I want to get married. <laughs> you know what? I had the same exact thought. I, but I'm not even a girl. <laughs> I did not want the Lord to come back because I wanted to get married. Maybe that's why I got married so young. But I'll never tell you how young. I, I, so I think this is quite natural, don't you? You know, God made us in a particular way. He made us lonely. He didn't make us whole. He made us half. He created us that way so that there would be a kind of a longing within us for a match, a counterpart. This is God created. You can't fight this. You can't argue with it. Another thing that God created us is he created us with a need for enjoyment, a need for pleasure. He made us this way because he made us beings of joy. He actually... He wants us happy. He does not want us heavy or sad or serious all the time. He wants us happy. You know, uh, I've been married for quite a while. I, I think uh, I can tell you I was married for 35 years. I already have three grandchildren. I'm just a young man. How could you have grandchildren? Well, that's my secret. Actually, I shouldn't even say this. I know this is being recorded, but I'm pretty excited about this. So I'm going to let you in on a secret. Uh, she'll probably kill me. My daughter, my oldest daughter, is pregnant with twins. Isn't that exciting? So I have already three grandchildren, and now I'm getting two for the price of one. I'll be up to five. I'm just really excited about this. She's excited too, but her husband is scared. Right? Isn't that... Well, they'll have to get one of those double-decker uh, UK uh, kind of strollers. Yes, you can... Put the, they already have a, a, a child, so there'll be three of them. They'll have to, you know, gang them up on there. God made us happy. And I mentioned, you know, I've been married for a while. I really like my wife to be happy. In fact, that's almost one of my whole goals in life, is to make sure she's happy. And it's hard for me to do that. That's uh, not because she's so hard to keep happy. It's because I'm not so keen on this kind of thing. God loves us to be happy. He really wants us to enjoy Him. And He wants us to have pleasure with Him. And He made us in this way so that we would 
really like this and want this and enjoy this. And so he made us this kind of vessel. And that's why within us there is this kind of hunger for these kinds of things. This is why we get hungry for companionship. You know, of male companionship, opposite sex. Which, you know, we always try to discourage you. Don't do that. But this is God created in the human vessel. Another th this other thing is just the need to have fun or the need to have enjoyment was created by God within the human vessel. Now you have to understand something, that Satan has taken everything precious that God has created and he's usurped it, twisted it, and is now using it to ruin people. And that, right? So that, that very holy and proper marriage relationship that should really fulfill you, Satan has taken that and using the lust of the flesh to create a, a, a mess of humanity living in all kinds of immorality. So he took what God created as a kind of necessity, he usurped it, twisted it, and made it into something terrible. And the same with the need for amusement. And so this is why young people in particular are drawn to all kinds of things, and we get bored so easy. We have to have stuff. In fact, today, the young people are so uh, overstimulated with television and then iPods and uh, video iPods and uh, computer games and the Internet, and it's just this constant barrage of electronic media just trying to keep us from getting bored. So we go from this to that to this to that to the phone to the uh, text, you know, text messaging. You know, I just got a new, a new trio. So I'm learning how to type with my fat thumbs. And I push like three uh, buttons at the same time. I'm not real fast. I also have an iPod, you know. I got a 20 gig iPod. I've got over 10 gigs of stuff on my iPod. You know what it is? It's what? No, it's not hymns. Some hymns, they're messages. You know, I go uh, exercise. And so when I exercise, I, just like everybody, everybody there has got their head plugged into something, you know? <laughs> Me too. I'm listening. To, I have fellowship with Ron and Ed. <laughs> and you know what? It makes it's easy because while they're talking, then I'm, I could pray. You know, the brothers say, well, pray this. So I do. I pray it. And because everybody has iPods on, nobody can hear me. And then sometimes after the message is over and I still got 10 more minutes on this machine and I'm <gasps> like that, then I put on this... It's not that bad. <laughs> then, then I put on the hymns, and while I'm listening to the hymns, I sing. I sing along. <laughs> and you know what? Nobody can hear me, because they all have their head plugged in to the... Uh, it's not idol, iPod, it's an idol. Right? 
Well, I tell you this because this is Satan's strategy is to gain all the young people and gain all the people into his system. And this is why we have this very interesting definition of an idol. It's all that replaces Christ and usurps man. It replaces Christ. You know, when God created us, he, want, he wants to be our enjoyment and he wants to be our pleasure. He's the one that wants to make us happy. This concept is hard to grasp because we cannot imagine the Lord making us happy. That's a new thought. You should pray about this thought. Lord, could you really make me happy? We could pray that, right? How about let's all pray that? Lord, make you really make me happy. Lord, could you really, really satisfy me? Or do I need something else? It's a good question, right? And so we turn to things and we go to things as kind of a replacement of Christ. And these things then become the idols. And then what happens is, is the idols become addicting. They have a hook. That's the bad part. So you, can't, you say, well, what is an idol? Well, you know, idols are all different. You, you can't hardly define it. It's very mysterious. In fact, tonight, we really have to pray that the Lord would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that our eyes would be open, not so that we could try to rip these idols out of our being and throw them away, but that we would see it for what it is. If you see it, you get delivered from it. That seeing helps a lot. So you have to ask the Lord, what is it in my life that I have that takes your place? Now the way the Lord will do this is little by little, over a long period of time, gradually, gradually, he will expose one thing after another thing after another thing that you go to, you turn to, instead of turning to him. And he becomes jealous of that thing. Maybe it's your best friend. You get sad. So instead of calling on the name of the Lord, you call on the name of your best friend to call them up. Because you want to talk, you know, you want to talk. Well, the Lord becomes jealous of that. He wants you to talk to him. Let me be the one you talk to. Let me be the one you turn to. And let me be the one that cheers you and makes you happy. Well, this morning, there's a few points that I, I wanted to bring out this, this t tonight as a kind of review from this morning. Uh, I thought the, the sharing this morning was so, so good. Um, and unfortunately, uh, ran out of time, so he didn't get a chance to fellowship too much from chapter 4 of Daniel. Um, but I had, a, I had a couple of reactions. One is this. Uh, well, before I do that, before I talk about that, let me, let me talk about something else. Because last night in our uh, outline, we had a point. It's from message three. Uh, 
if you want to turn back and look at that outline point, it's on page uh, 21. It's Roman numeral 1. And it says this, Nebuchadnezzar had a marvelous dream of a great human image. That dream should have impressed him deeply, but he forgot the dream because he did not have a heart for God's interest. And this is, uh, this is what touched me, or what, this whole afternoon I've been thinking about this. I believe this is the Lord speaking in me. It's like, we, this conference is like a marvelous dream. Dream with me for a minute that the Lord would actually come to us to become something so precious and valuable to Him. And He's actually calling us by name. I need you. I want you. Please, consider what the brothers are saying. I'd like you to do this. What an honor. It's a marvelous dream. This is like a dream. None of us could have dreamt this. We couldn't make this up. But the Lord's visiting us this weekend, speaking to us such a solid kind of word is like a marvelous dream. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, but he did not have a heart for God's interest, and so he forgot it. He forgot the dream. And I, I just felt, we can't forget this. It's possible, you see, if we get distracted or preoccupied, if something is wrong with our heart. This could be just another conference. Uh, it wasn't as good as last time. Uh, uh, just ho-hum. And we forget this. You know, my feeling this time is that this has been a very solid food. This is not easy. This is not easy for us brothers to talk about, and I'm sure it's not easy for you to get, to listen to, and understand. I think probably every meeting, I, I know for the brothers and for myself, every meeting is just like a battle. It's just so hard to release this kind of a message. You feel a real resistance by the enemy to even tell you these things. Yet we are so sure that this is what the Lord would like us to speak to you. It's a marvelous dream. Now, for young people, we have to have such a heart that we say, Lord, plant this dream as a seed in my being. I could never forget this. This will keep me through high school. It will keep me through college. It will keep me to the full-time training. And it will keep me until it is fulfilled. I believe the Lord will do this. Daniel, on the other hand, did not have the dream, but because he had a heart for God's interests, he saw the vision. I believe what we've had this weekend is a real vision. And this vision can capture us and control us. I also feel that this time the meetings have not been that high. And so we always want kind of a high experience. But don't be, don't be distracted by that. It doesn't need to be high. 
it needs to be solid. And this has been so solid. This is, this is really good. What we've been on and what the Lord has been releasing so far is really good. Now, uh, I would like to read you just some uh, points I wrote down. I really love Donnie's eight points this morning. And so I have some points of my own. Not eight, and mine are a little easier to write down, I think. Uh, and these are just a few points about what is idols. Just to help us see it. Number one, everybody is doing it. Everybody is doing it. The picture is so clear. Everybody bows down. But strangely, there are three young men who are clear about it and are standing up, standing erect, honoring God. Number two, that idolatry has a seduction. It has a pull. Do you remember the point on the outline that said that behind every idol is a demon? Or behind idol worship is the devil? To worship idols is to worship the devil? You see, there is a power that pulls you. That's why it's not easy to stand. Because when everybody's doing it, it becomes a tide. This is what our brother shared this morning. And what the young overcomers were victorious over was the seduction. The seduction. Oh, the third point, I already said it. Behind every idol is a demon. To be involved with idols is to be involved with demons. Isn't that serious? Number four. Idols demand loyalty and allegiance. I took this point from Nebuchadnezzar's rage. It's like everybody turns on you. Did you, did you realize that this is the control in the high schools, especially the strong power, is that if you did something different, your best friends will mock you and talk about you and turn against you. That's why it is so hard. And that's why you have to have companions to stand. Uh, number five, is that where I am? Idol worship makes you a beast. Did you see that this morning? You lose your God-given ability to stand on your own two feet and look up into heaven and honor God. Idol worship makes you a beast. Number six, idol worship has an issue. It results in some, some issues. And so I have a few more points under that point. Sorry. You forget God. You don't acknowledge God. You only acknowledge the idol. That's the first point does not fear God, does not revere God, honor God, thank God. The result of 
Idol worship is you lose your conscience. You lose the feeling in your conscience. You lose uh, the sense of sinfulness. What's wrong with it? So everyone says, what's wrong with it? What's wrong? What's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? So you don't have any, any feeling. Sisters, at the end of this age, Daniel and his companions were so full of feeling. And they knew when they had to stand. They knew when, and they were so full of feeling as a kind of reaction to all the things that were going on. I really pray that this weekend will fill you with a reaction, a divine reaction. No, I'm a Daniel. I don't do that. I can't do that. I can't go there. I can't be with you. And especially a reaction to death. There's some things that go on, some kind of talk that goes on. You know this. It just kills you. It kills you. It's death. And you need a reaction. You need that spontaneous anti-death reaction that a person full of life has. Okay. The last is that it results in debauchery. Okay. So now I have to explain what debauchery is. I need six more points. No, I'm teasing. Tonight's message is on debauchery, so that gets answered. Okay? I hope the Lord will open up our eyes to really impress us that we have to be different. We have to be Nazarites, really, to be Nazarites. There's a hymn in the hymn book I want to show you. Uh, if, get out your hymn book and let's turn to hymn 477. This is, I think, the oldest hymn in our hymn book. I heard this. I have not verified that. But it was written in the early uh, uh, centuries. Maybe somebody knows. 477. What I want to point out to you in particular is verse 2. I've never sung this hymn. I don't even know the tune. But I love the words of this verse. And especially in light of the image and the stone, which we saw last night, and the image becoming dust like chaff on the summer threshing floor and being blown away until there is no trace of it left. That's the destiny of the world. We see this destiny. It impresses us. Then it becomes hard for us to immerse ourselves in that kind of life, that kind of world. Look at this verse 2. Whate'er thou lovest man, that too become thou must. This is kind of old Hard to follow English. That means whatever you love, you become. Whate'er thou lovest man, that too become thou must. God, if thou lovest God, and dust, if thou lovest dust. You see, you become God when you love God. You become dust when you love dust. Isn't that serious? Keep reading. Sorry, I lost my place. 
Go out. God will come in. Is that what it says? Sorry. Go out. God will come in. Die there, thou, and let him live. Be not, and he will be. Wait, and he'll all things give. Anyway, this brings us up till tonight. Sisters, whatever we love, we become. It's a serious thing. We love the Lord, right? Lord, we love you. Let's declare that. Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Okay, let's get out our outline and let's begin reading through this. I will try, I'm really uh, trying to finish so that we could have some time for a lot of sharing at the end. I hope we could do that. And I hope a lot of you will share something. Let's read the title together. The victory of the young overcomers over the ignorance concerning the result of debauchery before God and over the subtlety that prohibited the faithfulness of the overcomers in the worship of God. Okay, long title, long title. The victory of the young overcomers over ignorance. Over the ignorance concerning the result of debauchery. So you have debauchery, you have the result of debauchery, and you have the ignorance concerning the result of debauchery. Complicated titles. As we go into the story, we'll define what debauchery is. Debauchery, in short, is eating and drinking without limitation. Drinking to be drunk for an immoral purpose that leads to immorality. The story goes something like this, that uh, Belshazzar, who's now a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, is now the king. And he has a big feast for a thousand of his lords. And they're eating and drinking wine. He brings out his wives and his concubines. And there is all kinds of, uh, well, it doesn't say in the Bible, but the implication is, is that they are drunk, they're drinking, and it's like a big immoral kind of party. Hard to describe. Uh, debauchery, in fact, okay, let me just tell you the, uh, uh, the definitions. One of the definitions of debauchery is an orgy. Eating and drinking. Orgy, I, I don't even like to say this. I feel like even after I say some of these kinds of words, I need the Lord's blood to cleanse me, cleanse my mouth cleanse my being, and cleanse your ears. You see, uh, some of these things are really filthy. They're just filthy. The kind of life. In the outline it says that it's an overindulgence in eating and drinking for an immoral purpose. 
Well, concerning debauchery, there's a result. There's an issue of that. But concerning that result, that result is, oh, you know, in short, it's judgment. God will judge this, severely judge this. But concerning that result, there is an overwhelming ignorance. People are stupid about this. They have no knowledge of this. They do not want to know about this. You follow me? Uh, there's a footnote in Ephesians chapter 4 about the ignorance that is within them, having their, you know, darkened in their understanding and uh, because of the hardness of their heart and because of the ignorance that is within them. The footnote says that they're not just short of knowledge, they're unwilling to know. They don't want to know. And isn't this today? Isn't this today's society? Isn't this the world that we live in today? that there is sure judgment. There is a sure issue to the kind of immoral, immorality and immoral living that is going on everywhere. And there is not only an ignorance, there is an unwillingness to learn and know. The title goes on. There's also an insult to God's holiness. And then it goes on past that. We'll cover that later. Let's read Roman 1 together. Daniel and his companions were victorious over the... Sisters, tonight we have a message that has a spiritual view for spiritual lessons. Very serious lesson here. In fact, uh, the story is quite, um, quite compelling. Uh, a, I'll read it. Belshazzar, a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar and a king of Babylon, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And he drank wine before them, revealing Belshazzar's Debauchery before God. Debauchery is an overindulgence in eating and drinking for an immoral purpose. All right, read one. Sisters, go ahead. Belshazzar, under the influence of the wine... Terrible. Uh, number two, go ahead, read that one. Okay. So, seems in, innocent enough. He just having a a big feast for a thousand of his lords. I just would like tonight to compare that party with the age we live in today. We live in an age of debauchery. 
that promotes all kinds of eating and drinking for immorality. The dating scene is just like this. The TV shows, the movies, everything promotes. You could say that every, every form of entertainment and amusement promotes debauchery. Our culture is a culture of debauchery. Wouldn't you agree? Don't you agree? I'm not too much. In fact, the sisters on the high school campuses, you know, you know this better than I do. The kind of immorality and the kind of uh, fornication that is going on. And you know what? No one talks about the result. No, in fact, it's taboo. You never saw a TV show that showed the heartache of an immoral kind of life resulting in an unwanted pregnancy or resulting in, in divorce. The kind of tears, the kind of anguish. Never. It's always glorified as something so beautiful, so wonderful. Sometimes we, uh, we heard about, and we saw, actually, I, I went to some websites, some MySpace, Zanga sites, and the rap music that comes up, 50 Cent, and these different kinds of artists, hip-hop. This whole hip-hop culture is debauchery. It's debauchery. This kind of music video, have you seen it? You, you've seen it. You know this. This is, this is, we're, we're like, right now, we're like in Belshazzar's palace in the midst of this party. It's happening all around us. And while it's happening, they're drunk. So they have no feeling, no sense at all of the impending doom. You know, uh, this morning, Brother Donnie's sharing just so, so clear that when you, when you live this kind of way, it turns you into a beast. You become kind of like, like an animal. No conscience, no feeling. There's no right and wrong. And so, you could say, even that our society is, is so much like this. And so, as an older brother, I'm very concerned for all of you that you grow up and you live in this kind of environment and that you may be unknowingly affected by this kind of environment. Oh, Lord Jesus, who can stand? Who can stand in such a situation? I want to read some of these verses from Daniel chapter 5 to you. If you want to read along, you can go to page 47. 
page 47, Daniel chapter 5 at the beginning. Uh, this was covered by our outline. But anyway, look at Belshazzar under the influence of the wine. This is verse 2. Commanded men to bring the gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood and stone. At the moment, the, at that moment, look at five, the fingers of a man's hand came forth and wrote opposite the lampstand upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw that part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts alarmed him and the joints of his hips loosened and his knees began to knock together. He was terrified. What happened is this. Right at this time, when they brought the golden vessels out of the which were taken out of the house of God in Jerusalem and brought them to, into his party to use them so that he could worship his idols with them. That was an insult to God's holiness. So you have two things going on here. You have debauchery going on that has a result, a result of judgment. And then you have another thing that's compounded that, which was the insult to God's holiness. So, it's like this. What are the vessels for God's house? The vessels in the New Testament are people. Vessels used for the worship of God in God's house are us. And we are holy people. We are a particular kind of person. God made us a certain way, and he called us for his purpose. He saved us. To the Apostle Paul, he was called a chosen vessel unto me. In Romans chapter 9, you have a vessels of mercy. In the New Testament, the basic fundamental principle concerning believers is that they are vessels to contain God, to be used in the worship of God. Now you take these vessels, which are you and me, and you bring them into this kind of debauchery, and you use them in that kind of a way, this becomes an insult to God's holiness, and it invites God's severe involvement. I'm, uh, I'm involved with a number of cases of debauchery among the saints. And I'm not 
ignorant to think that this does not happen among us in the Lord's recovery. I know that what we have, I, I mentioned the, the music industry, the movies, the TV, everything is promoting this. It's school. I'm always concerned about even this uh, uh, influence, the uh, homosexual, gay, lesbian kind of uh, power. It's, it's, a, it's an influence that has gone from zero to a hundred in the shortest amount of time. It has become a prevailing part of our culture. It's been fully uh, accepted into our culture. Within every believer, there should be a kind of reaction. We never hate this. We don't hate people. And don't think we can't make this distinction. We can make this distinction. We don't hate people created by God, people that the Lord died for. But we can never, ever stand with this kind of culture and this kind of lifestyle. This is, this is a kind of debauchery. I hope no sister in this room would ever think that they were created this way to be a homosexual, to be a lesbian, to be gay. This is so prevailing, uh, even on the university campuses, uh, on the high school campuses, in, in some places, in some cities, more than others. It is, it is a prevailing cultural thought. This is, this is what this is about. Now, while no God-man, no God-man should ever think like that, nor should they ever participate in any kind of immoral kind of behavior. You have to preserve your holy body against all kinds of immorality and any kind of uh, immoral kind of things. Fornication today is so prevailing. In Europe, it's worse. If there's not some sisters standing and standing together. You have to make a pact among yourselves to stand and not participate in this kind of thing. Or the handwriting appears on the wall. Let me finish reading some of these verses to you. Then he Okay, so Belshazzar's hips, the joints in his hips loosen, and his knees begin to knock together. Then the king cried out loudly to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king responded and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who reads this writing and declares its interpretation to me shall be clothed in purple, shall have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall rule as the third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came, but they could not read. These wise men in Babylon, they have serious problems. They couldn't figure out anything. They're not wise men. They're dumbos. <laughs> Verse 11, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His countenance was further changed, and his lords were perplexed. 
The queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet house. The queen mother responded and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you, nor your, let your countenance change. Don't be sad. Don't be sad. We can fix this. Don't worry. I'll fix it for you. There is a man in your kingdom. Okay, let's read verse 11. This is good. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. So of your forefather, light and insight and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your forefather, your forefather, O king, made him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Because an excellent spirit and knowledge and insight and interpretation of dreams and declaring of riddles and the resolving of problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be called, and he will declare the interpretation. Okay. An excellent spirit. What a... This is what we have. Sisters, we, we need an excellent spirit. Okay, then Daniel gets called. Now, jump down to verse 17. It's on the next page. Because the king repeats himself. He says, if you can interpret this, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. You get a robe, a new outfit, a gold chain, and you get to be the third ruler in the, in the kingdom. Daniel was not impressed. Then Daniel said, look, at, look what Daniel said. There is a, a long rebuke. Do you know what Daniel did? Let me just tell you what he did because it's too hard to read all that. When Daniel came in, now it says young overcomers in the title. Actually, Daniel is at least 85 years old now. He's an old man. And he knows this guy, Belshazzar, probably from when he was born. And so, or Belshazzar, and so when Daniel comes in, Daniel rebukes him. What are you going to do, kill me? You've already tried to kill me a bunch of times. You can't kill me. He rebuked him. He said, you know what? Your forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, learned a serious lesson. This happened to him. He became a beast because he did not know that there's a God in the heavens that you should fear him, you should honor him, you should respect him. You can't live like this. You can't behave like this and escape. Why don't you know this? Your forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, he became an animal for seven weeks with a chain on him, his claws, feathers, eating grass like a bull. And you knew this. He said, you knew this. And you didn't learn from that? What is wrong with you? What do you think Belshazzar was thinking? Whoa, I didn't expect this, you know. He, of course, he's still drunk. Daniel. Daniel was so good. That's an excellent spirit. You know what it is? It's clarity. It's clarity. He's so clear. He's clear. You know what? He, he saw the lesson. He saw the lesson his forefather learned. He saw what it did to him, how it affected Nebuchadnezzar. And that lesson was not just for Nebuchadnezzar. 
that was for Nebuchadnezzar and all of his descendants. There is a strong and interesting principle here, sisters. It is this. If you can learn the lessons from your forefathers, you can quickly grow in life and you can quickly become useful in the Lord's hand. If you refuse to learn what your forefathers passed through, then you are destined to repeat all of their same mistakes. And this will slow you down. God has graciously given you elders in the churches, leading ones, parents, and brothers and sisters who have passed through many things, have suffered many things, have made horrible mistakes, but have learned something. And they would like to pass these things on to you. Sisters, I'm, I'm here tonight just in humble spirit before the Lord. I wish you would take this kind of word. If you take it, you learn. You don't have to go through this. My question uh, within me is that how many times do we have to see the same history repeated again and again and again? Why do we have to see it happening over and over and over? Haven't we seen enough? Haven't we seen enough ruined lives? Hasn't there been enough anguish, tears, and repenting for an immoral kind of living? Do you know what I'm talking about? Every one of us knows either a saint or someone not in the church that has suffered some things. because of an immoral kind of life. They took the vessels that were, the vessels that are for God's house, for his worship, which is you and me, and brought it into that kind of situation. It insulted God's holiness. And it invited God's judgment. The handwriting on the wall was mene, mene, tekel, eupharsin. Let's read on the outline. We'll get to this. Daniel rebuked him. B, at the very moment that they were drinking wine and praising their gods, the fingers of a man's hand came forth and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. When Belshazzar saw the hand that wrote, he was greatly alarmed. Sisters, read one. The king called. Two, the writing that was inscribed was Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. Mene means this. God has numbered Belshazzar's kingdom and brought it to an end. 
Tonight's your last day. You didn't know it. Your kingdom is over starting tonight. What a word. What a shock. Tekel. He has been weighed in the scales and found to be lacking. In other words, we put you on the scale and you're way short. This is Daniel talking to the king. Paris. His kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now read C, sisters. In that very night, Belshazzar the king was slain. There is no indication that Belshazzar repented or had a change. Probably there was no time for him to repent. Isn't that serious? Number one. I'll read it. In this case, we see the importance of being serious with God and not disregarding any spiritual lesson. Belshazzar did not benefit from the lesson learned by his forefather Nebuchadnezzar that God is able to abase those who walk in pride. Number two, how about you read that? Should make a deep impression on us. We all need to see that if we have received some lesson from God, we must regard that very seriously. Some of us have already uh, experienced some things. We, got, we went somewhere, we did something, and within we had a strong feeling you have stepped over the line. That feeling that word, that alarm in our being should be a serious alarm to us that we should not take lightly. The fact that Belshazzar did not have time to repent is serious. That means things happen sometimes and there's, it's over, just like that. It's just like that. I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid to tell you some stories of young people they didn't have time to repent and they were taken right in the middle of their debauchery. Do you think that's not serious? You know what? The army of the Medes and the Persians, that empire, the next empire, you know, on the image, was marching on the capital as he was having a party. And he was drunk and didn't even know it. How could he not know it? You know, we, are, we are talking. How, you know, they didn't just swoop in like this. I mean, in those days, those armies didn't move that fast. They were all on foot. They were marching on this capital while he is having a party. What is wrong with him? What's wrong with him? 
is the same thing that's wrong with us in our society today. I mean, us in Southern California people. It's just like the days of Noah. In fact, let's turn to our verse sheet and let's read those verses because our verse sheet tonight is not very long. And then I'll get to the second half of this outline. Matthew 24, 37 to 39. For just as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as there were in those days before the flood, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day in which Noah entered into the ark. And they did not know that the judgment was coming until the flood came and took all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. There's one other verse I want you to read. In fact, I really would like you to write this down. It's Luke chapter 21, verse 36, uh, 34 through 36. I think it's helpful to read the Word, even though it takes a little bit of time. Luke 21 This, actually, I felt like these verses in Luke 21 match the story that we just read. Look at verse 34. Luke 21, 34. How about you read it, if you have it? But take heed to yourselves, lest perhaps your hearts be weighed down with debauchery and drunkenness and the anxieties of this that that day come upon you suddenly as a snare. That's what happened. The day came upon him suddenly. Look at verse 35. For it will come in upon all those dwelling on the face of all the earth. The end time will be just like that. That is exactly what will happen at the end of this age. It will come like a flood. It will come just like that on all those people. And then there's a verse 36 that tells us what to do. Read verse 36. But be watchful at every time. You would prevail to escape all these things which are about to happen and stand before the Son of Man. Isn't that good? That tells us that we should be watchful and that we have to beseech. That means we have to pray and ask. Lord, save me from this. Save me out of this hour of trial. Lord, I want to prevail to escape. Escape all these things. I want to stand before you at the throne. This is to be in the out-resurrection. This is to be raptured with the overcomers. That is how to pray to be an overcomer. Pray read Luke 21, 36. That is the prayer of the overcomers. I think everyone that becomes an overcomer has been praying that verse. I mean it. Lord, I want to prevail to escape all these things that are about to happen and stand before the Son of Man. Okay, now we have to go on to chapter 6. I hope I covered everything. Well, did we? Yeah, we read it. Okay. Roman 2. 
Go ahead, read it. Daniel. Now, they're victorious over the subtlety that prohibited the faithfulness of the overcomers in the worship of God. Okay, now, this chapter 6 is a beautiful sight. The other one is a disgusting sight. This chapter is beautiful. This one should cause us all to like to be like this. I would like to be in Daniel chapter 6. I don't want to be in Daniel chapter 5. So let's read through this outline, and then we're going to read some verses too. A, we must have a clear vision of how God carries out His economy with His people for Christ's coming. Christ desires to carry out His economy, but man is needed to pray for His economy on earth. Oh, there's so much in all these. The Lord wants to come back. It's, he wants to come back. He wants to end this age. This is something that is in the heart of God. But He needs people on the earth that want it too and will pray for it. They give Him the best cooperation. He needs people on the earth who will cooperate with the heart of God to give Him the prayers that He needs so He can do what He wants to do. Isn't that something that God is almighty, but He can't do what He wants to do until He gets people, men on the earth, who will give Him the prayers He needs for Him to carry out His purpose. And this is what we see with Daniel. One, I'll read it. God carries out His economy on the earth through His faithful channels of prayer. God's move is like a train which must have rails for its move. Man's prayers are like the rails which pave the way for God's move to go on. There is no other way to bring God's economy into fullness and fulfillment except by prayer. Satan's strategy is to frustrate the prayer which is for God's move. Okay. Underline, there is no other way to bring God's economy into fullness and fulfillment except by prayer. Sisters, you're young. If the Lord delays another 10, 20 years, I hope every one of you would become a praying person, a person that knows how to pray. You say, well, I already know a little bit about how to pray, but think about this for a minute. Almost all of our prayers are about me. They're all about my problem, my need, my unhappiness, my discomfort, my sickness, my poverty. It's all, always about me. My test, my grades, that school I want to get into. Right? We just, we're just absorbed. Almost all our contact with the Lord is about me. It's about, it's all for me. Think about this. How many billions of, millions of Christians there are on the earth today who prays 
for what he wants. Who knows what he wants? Nobody knows it, much less could pray for it. Daniel knew what God wanted. Somehow Daniel found out. We should discover how did Daniel find out? How does he know this? So you know what Daniel did? Daniel became a channel of prayer in God's hand. Daniel was so precious to God because he was cooperating with God. He, he was like one with God on the earth. Whatever God needed, Daniel would pray it. And then God could do it. What a coordination was that? What kind of cooperation is that? Sisters, this is what the Lord will turn you into. This is what a dispensational instrument is. They are, oh, they are one with God. They know what he wants. And they pray prayers that give the Lord the chance to do what he wants to do. Did you ever think about the Lord's Prayer, so-called Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who's in the heavens, your name be sanctified. Your name be sanctified. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was what Daniel was praying. He was praying for the kingdom to come. He was praying for God's will to be done. He was praying prayers that gave God the way to do what he wanted to do. Now, Satan hates this. We've seen this over and over and over again in all six chapters, that you stand for God. You become useful in God's hand. It's like you become a magnet for attacks. That's okay. Don't be afraid of that. We're not afraid. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, or even Satan. We're standing on the earth for God. And we're giving him the prayers he needs so that he can move. At this, at this crucial time in the history of the uh, captivity in Babylon, Daniel is praying over the book of Jeremiah. And while he's praying over the book of Jeremiah, he discovers through two portions that the captivity in, in Babylon is 70 years. He saw this in Jeremiah. It's, in, it's on your outline referenced. 70 years. I think it's there. From what I could tell, you know, I've been doing a, trying to do a little bit of study. He discovered this about year 68 or 69. What do, you think, what do you think he did? I found a verse. Jesus is coming next year. Or we're out of here next year. It's over. Hallelujah. You know what Daniel did? He prayed. He got on his knees and he repented. He confessed his personal sins. He confessed the sins of his people. Why? Because that's what God needed. He felt it. And then he prayed for his, the holy land, the holy city, and the holy temple. He prayed with his window open, on his knees, with his whole being 
towards God's kingdom. He was praying what we in the New Testament would pray, your kingdom come. That's what he was praying. And he was praying this way three times a day. He had set times where he was praying kingdom prayers. Prayers that were going to turn the age and bring in the kingdom. He knew that the time was short and that the age needed his prayers. And so he was giving God the prayers that God needed so that that what he saw could happen. He realized that just because it was prophesied, it was not automatically going to happen. It needed him to pray. I think this is so beautiful. Don't you aspire to be like this? Oh, don't you want to be like this? So, at, the same, at this time, now at this time, Belshazzar is dead, Medo-Persia has taken over, and a new king is in place. His name is Darius. Darius is the king of the Medes. Cyrus was the king of the Persians. Darius, the king of the Medes, again, had a little problem with pride and egomania. And Daniel was placed high up in his administration of the top, he was in the top three. He was ruling with three others over entire, it's like being over the western United States. He was over it all. And in fact, it says in the Bible that the king was thinking to place him over everybody because he was so excellent. You become a dispensational instrument, you become uh, something like this, you are useful. You won't be the President of the United States, perhaps, but you will be someone with capacity. So all these other guys were jealous of Daniel, and they're trying to catch him, you know, like politics. They're trying to get you to say, oh, you know what he said? He said this about uh, Jews, or he said this about uh, this or about that. And so, oh, he's such a bad guy. He's such a bad guy. He, he... So politically, they were trying to catch Daniel, and they were scrutinizing everything. They couldn't find anything wrong with him because he was so pure. And so they said, the only way we're going to catch Daniel is if we catch him in some matter related to his worship of God. So you go, okay. So then they got this bright idea. And so they went to Darius and they said, we have a good idea. You're the new king. You're kind of like God. How about nobody prays to anybody except to you for the next 30 days? So that means no one can pray anywhere to anyone except to Darius for 30 days. Darius goes, sounds good to me, signs it into law. What do you think Daniel did? <laughs> exactly. That's what, that's what overcomers do. They pray. You can't pray? Watch me. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's read the outline. We'll go down and read it, and then we'll come back and read a few more verses. Uh, B. How about you read B? Daniel was set by a people 
Wow. C, being jealous of Daniel, the chief ministers and satraps tried to find a way to accuse him. Knowing of Daniel's faithfulness in prayer, they recommended that the king establish a statute that anyone who made a petition within the next 30 days to any god or man beside the king would be cast into the lion's den. Go ahead, read D. This is important. The intention... This prayer was so important to God. And Satan knew that this prayer was turning the age. This prayer was operating to bring them out, the children of Israel out of the age of captivity into the age of return. Amen. It was like pivoting on Daniel's knees. The whole age was. And these guys were jealous of Daniel and, tr and because of their jealousy tried to do something. But Satan behind them was desperate to stop Daniel's prayer because of the effect that Daniel's prayer was having on the age. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that the prayer of a person could have such impact in historical and age-turning consequences? It's, it's beyond imagination. Sisters, why are we telling you this? Because you will do this. This is your job. This is your calling. We are, we are delivering this message. You could be these people. Let's go. Uh, okay, E, Daniel remained faithful in the worship of God. As soon as he came to know that the writing had been signed, he went to his house, knelt and prayed, giving thanks before his God with his window open towards Jerusalem because he had always done so previously. Okay, uh, now let's go, uh, let's look at the verses. Again, we, we, I want you to, you got to see this verse. It's on page uh, 48 at the bottom. Uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. Let's all read that. Now when Daniel came to know... You need to underline, starting with because. Because, why did he do it? Because he had always done so previously. He had a habit. He had a practice. He had built it up probably over many years to pray with his window open towards Jerusalem on his knees. What a practice. Have you ever prayed on your knees? And you know what it means to pray with your window open towards Jerusalem? 
That means your whole being is set on God's kingdom, God's house, and Christ, God's Christ. Christ is the good land. The church is the temple. And the kingdom is the city. And so while Daniel's window is open, that's what his whole being is for. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How about if there was some prayers three times a day by young people with the windows of their being directed at God's eternal purpose and not our self, our problems. These are the kind of prayers that turn ages. This is the kind of prayer that is useful in God's hand. Okay, let's keep, let's keep reading. We'll be done here. F, the chief ministers and the satraps found Daniel making petition and supplication before, his God, before God and reported to the king concerning the edict. Knowing that the edict could not be changed, the opposers threw Daniel into the lion's den. You know, it says that, uh, you read the verses, that Darius was really upset with himself that he had signed that law. He was, oh man, why did I do that? He loved Daniel. And now he can't get out of it. And it, it implies that he tried everything to get out of this. But he couldn't. So he threw Daniel into the lion's den and he sealed the, the door. They closed up the mouth of the den and sealed it with his signet ring. And he told Daniel, your God is able to deliver you from the lions. And then he went home and he was in mourning all night. No entertainment. You know, he didn't watch TV that night. He didn't put on his CD or his iPod. He just fasted. Then early in the morning, he came down, opened up the thing, and he called out to Daniel. He said, Daniel, did your God save you? I sure hope he did. And Daniel, well, we should read. Well, I guess we have to read the verses for that. I, Uh, look at the top, uh, page 49, the top of the right column, 19. Then the king rose at dawn at the first light and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den, he shouted to Daniel with a sad voice. The king responded and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth and they have not hurt me. Inasmuch as before him innocence was found in me, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was very pleased concerning him, and he commanded that they take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and he was found completely unhurt, because he had trusted in his God. Then the king commanded, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and threw them into the lion's den, them, their children, and their wives, and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. You like that? <laughs> I read a Jewish historian's account of this story, Josephus. 
he's not a believer, he's not a brother, and he doesn't read the Bible. He just tells the story. And you know what he said in there? It's kind of interesting. So, but don't pay too much attention to this. I just thought it was kind of funny. That Darius, one of the things that he tried to do to keep the lions from eating Daniel is he overfed them. He fed them a lot of food. In, in fact, it's, it wasn't that. It was that those accusers accused him of doing that. Those men, you know, after Daniel came out, they said those men accused Darius of stuffing the, the lions so that they would not be hungry. So that Darius then, this is, see, I don't even know if it's true, so I don't even know if I should tell you this. I, it's just funny, it's funny. So then Darius said, okay, since they're so stuffed, why don't we put you in the lion's den and see what happens? So then they put them in the lion's den and they all got eaten up. So that's how Darius proved his point. Anyway, don't mind that. But you know what? We should finish reading the outline because just like with Daniel's three companions, God did not rescue them from the fiery furnace. He joined them in the fire. And just like this, God did not deliver Daniel from the lion's den. He just caused the lions to have no effect on him. Uh, oh yeah, that's the next point. G, go ahead, read it. This story of Daniel's prayer reveals God's victory over Satan in the worship of God on earth, even in a Gentile kingdom, through the overcomers in the captivity of his defeated elect. Daniel's victory over the subtlety that prohibited the faithfulness of the overcomers in the worship of God was the last step of the victory over Satan's devices. Without these overcomers, God would have been fully defeated by Satan having nothing on earth for himself. Finished. Well, what do you think? Sorry, maybe too long. Still quite a vivid picture tonight, both of debauchery and complete ignorance, and at the same time a beautiful sight of a man cooperating with God to close the age. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we just pray with our neighbor for a couple of minutes to thank the Lord and even to pray, Lord, make me like Daniel. Make me one who could turn the age. Okay, just for a few minutes.